0: again, everyone. Now, last week I left you with a little bit of, I think we'll call it a cliffhanger as we closed chapter 14. You might remember the very last verse that we looked at from last week. Uh, Chapter 14, verse 20 says, Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Now, you can be someone who knows literally nothing about Samson, You can be someone who has never heard the strange story that has brought us to this point. But if I were to go out on the street and read anyone this one simple verse and ask them, where does this story go from here? I think almost everyone would agree that this is not going to be pretty. If you have ever watched just one episode of the Jerry Springer Show, if you have ever just one time become enthralled by a daytime TV soap opera, You have heard a very similar, probably intriguing, and strange story of betrayal. We all know that these type of strange stories, they typically do not end with a polite conversation over a glass of tea. The affected people, they usually do not sit down and hash out their differences while receiving positive reinforcement from a neutral third party. Typically in these type of situations, someone is going to pick up a chair and they are going to attempt to use it as a weapon. And a big, bald security guy is going to have to jump in the middle and intervene before someone is murdered on live TV, because where our passions burn the brightest is often where we are most likely to resort to despicable and violent behavior, right? That's why we call them crimes of passion. Today, we're going to jump right into chapter 15, and we're going to see how chapter 15 begins, how this cliffhanger will begin for us how God's going to use this news that was delivered to Samson, right? God's chosen instrument, his chosen instrument to rile up the Philistines. Let's see how Samson's going to deal with this news. Uh, this is verses one and two of chapter 15. It says, after some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber.'" but her father would not allow him to go in. Her father said, I really thought you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. Now remember, this is the wife who did betray Samson. This is the same woman who, who just last week, we, we heard Samson refer to her as his heifer. This is the wife who he abandoned and she has now been given to someone else. And I guess truthfully, we probably shouldn't even place the blame on the girl's father here. He had this daughter in his home who was abandoned by her husband. We also need to remember this is a husband who also just murdered 30 of their countrymen after the wedding reception. Right? We need to remember there's no Facebook relationship status. We can't go and check to see what Samson thought if he thought he was still married. But what happened is... Samson got angry. Samson called his new wife a bunch of names. Samson murdered a bunch of guys, and then he left. So of course, yes, Samson's father-in-law is surprised that he has now showed back up, knocking on his door, looking to consummate his new marriage. We don't know exactly how long it's been. We can kind of read into it, assume it's probably been at least a couple weeks. Maybe it's even been a couple of months. But Samson shows up with a goat under his arm as a gift, figuring that's going to make everything all better. How many of us guys have done that just with a dozen roses instead of a young goat? You see, this young lady who was abandoned, though, she's now looked at as, as damaged goods. So her father comes along, and he's in damage control mode, and he finds someone else who is willing to take her off of his hands. And I know that sounds... Despicable to us, distasteful to us, right? We, we we're only two or three verses into this chapter and we can already see how the Philistine culture treated daughters, how they treated women in general. But the Philistine father, he is not completely insensitive, right? He has a perfect solution to this problem. He figures out how he's going to appease Samson. He says, good news today, Samson. I have another daughter for you. And in fact, what he says is this daughter is younger and this daughter is prettier than the first one and she can be yours for the low, low price of that goat that you're carrying under your arm. It seems horrible, doesn't it, to marry your daughter off to someone you know to be a homicidal maniac just to keep the peace. And we remember, Samson decided to marry this Philistine girl in the first place, right? What did the scripture tell us? Because she was right in his eyes. Essentially because he saw that she was desirable. Uh, We have to remember this was not some sort of a long courtship where Samson fell in love with this young lady because of her her personality or the quality of her character. She looked sweet and he said, I have to have that. And if this is the only standard that Samson had to, to marry this Philistine girl in the first place, it actually sounds like he's being offered a pretty sweet deal, doesn't it? It sounds like he's being offered an upgrade. His father-in-law is saying, Samson, if you thought wife number one was young and you thought she was cute, well, look here, this one's younger and this one's cuter. He's saying, you're trading up. You're getting a 10 for the price of a 7. This was no filthily presented servant girl. right? This was something that was being presented to Samson as an upgrade. How do we think Samson's going to react? I'll give you three choices. Uh, Do we think he's gonna react, he's gonna thank his father-in-law for being so generous and so understanding, throw his new bride over his burly shoulders and travel home? Is he going to maybe pick up a chair and throw it at the man while he hurls expletives at him that cannot be aired on daytime television? Or option C, is he going to catch 300 foxes, tie their tails together with a torch in between them, and use them to burn down the grain fields and bring economic and social disaster upon an entire people? Well, if you said C, you're correct. It's almost like you guys have read this before. You see, what we see Samson do next is because of his pride. It's Samson's pride in this instance that has been wounded And it's always been about pride with Samson, hasn't it? Right In his pride, he behaved like this caveman commanding that his parents go get him, this Philistine girl. In his pride, he made that bet at the wedding reception and told his riddle. In his pride, he suffers defeat. In his pride, he takes life. And it's still in the midst of all of his pride that he makes a bold proclamation in verse 3. Verse 3, Samson says, This time... I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So in Samson's pride, he devises a plan to bring ruin upon the enemies of God's people, the oppressors of God's people. What we're going to see today is that Samson is going to continue to sow strife between the Philistines and the Israelites. Now, while he's doing it, though, Samson is still going to continue to do whatever Samson wants to do whenever Samson wants to do it. Samson will be someone who will continue to do whatever is right in his own eyes, but what we're going to see is that God's will will continue to be done. God's story is going to continue on. This this march that God is laying out, this plan towards salvation will always continue. But it will take a path today that none of us would have the foresight to write ourselves. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. It says, Samson went and caught 300 foxes, and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Uh, Philistine country was grain country. This was their largest cash crop. The grain was their biggest trade asset. So what we just read is Samson hitting these people where it hurts. In fact, it's probably hitting them where it hurts them the most. You know, don't think of this as a mugger coming by and stealing your wallet. This, this is a hacker who logs into your account and empties out your savings. Based on the description that we're given, Samson unleashes his flaming foxes upon the field at the worst possible time for the Philistines. This all would have happened uh, probably sometime around May when the grain was standing at its peak. This means harvest had already begun. This means there would not have been time for them to re-sow new seeds. Their entire growing season is lost. It also, we should not be ignorant to the, the, the strange fact that Samson just casually catches 300 foxes and manages to tie their tails together. Right? This in itself, this is a miracle. This is something that Samson could never have done under his own power. But again, because of his pride, Samson shows no sign, he shows no worry of doing God's will Samson's only concern right now is ensuring that his guerrilla warfare tactics are going to be as effective as they possibly can be. Because for Samson, every fight that he is in, it's always personal. See, Samson's not worried at all about ridding the land of of the, the foreign oppressors, right, like all of the judges who came before him. This Samson whose calling is arguably higher than any judge also that has come before him, he is completely and utterly infatuated with doing his own thing. He doesn't even notice that God is moving. He doesn't even notice that you should not be able to subdue and tie foxes together without divine intervention. But the question that comes up then is, why would God allow this prideful, sinful man's actions to be successful? Whenever we see Samson, he just continues to flex his free will over anyone who may insult him. But God does have a purpose for Samson, and that purpose, again, is to sow strife among the people. Because the people, they have become completely content and they have become completely complacent. If we go all the way back to chapter 13, when the angel visits Samson's mother, we see that this has always been the plan, that this would be a boy that would not be born to save his people. It says that he would be the one who would begin the process of calling the people out from under the hands of the Philistines. But in this current moment, Samson is rampaging. And while he rampages the people of of God, they are not ready, but more on that in a bit. I think right now what's important is to understand how angry the Philistines are. Again, their harvest has been ruined. They face economic disaster. There will be people that will starve because of what we just read. And they want justice. I mean, they would call it justice. We would probably look at their tactics and we would call it vengeance. But in their eyes, they want justice. When they learn that it is Samson who has destroyed their fields, they go to his father-in-law and they hold him responsible for the despair that's been brought upon them, they decide that they are going to first go and take their wrath out upon this family. Because after all, it was this family who invited this maniac into their midst. And while, again, we can't argue with their desire to see justice serves served, their means are a bit extreme, at least I hope they are a bit extreme for our sensibilities Again, if your savings account was hacked, if your 401k was emptied of every cent that you had, if you watched your dreams and your plans of a nice, happy, content retirement drift out the window with one keystroke, you would also want justice, would you not? Think all the way back to Samson's big uh, wedding party. These who, who Samson says plowed with his heifer. Remember, they didn't actually plow with her. What they did is they threatened her. That's what they did. They said, if you do not get your hubby to tell us the answer to his riddle and we lose this bet, we're going to take it out on you and your family. What it says specifically in chapter 14, verse 15, it says, the men told her that they will burn her and her father's house with fire. So, So this is how this works. It's because of that threat that she goes out and betrays Samson. And it's because of of, of her betrayal that Samson storms off back to mommy and daddy's house. And because Samson stormed off, she's then given to another man. Because she's given to another man, Samson burns down the grain fields. And because Samson burnt down the grain fields, verse 6 of chapter 15 tells us what the Philistines did in response. It says, they came to her, came and burned her and her father with fire. Um, Anybody with little kids or grandkids, you ever read um, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie? Do you guys know that book? This is like some weird, sick, twisted version of If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. Instead of it ending with a mouse and a cookie, it always ends with you being burned alive by fire. See, Samson's wife that, that seemed so right in his own eyes, she's gone. She's dead. Her whole family's dead. But God is not done See, it's still in God's will that conflict will continue to arise between his people and the pagan Philistines who are oppressing them. So because of this, Samson cannot just let sleeping dogs lie. He can't just leave things alone and move on with his life. His pride, again, is stirred in him, and he will again seek to bring vengeance and bring violence upon the Philistines for what they did to his wife, the same wife who he despised just a few weeks ago. So after extracting even more violence and more revenge upon the people, Samson goes and he hides in a cave. You see, it's Samson's belief, obviously, that the only way that you stop the escalation of violence is with more violence. But not surprisingly, his logic is flawed. This is what we read in verses 9 and 10. It says, Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, we have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. So now what we see is an army, because of Samson's actions, have marched upon the Israelites. They flex their might, they raid a village to get the Jews' attention, and then they set up camp. And the response from the Israelites, it is one of submission. They, they come before and they cower before the mighty Philistines and they say, why, well, why have you come up against us? What the Israelites do next is they gather together an army of 3,000 men. But they don't gather an army of 3,000 men to fight the invaders who are wrongfully occupying their land. They don't gather an army of 3,000 men because they remember what God did for Gideon with just 300 men. No, again, remember, these people are, are, are content. These people are complacent. They see themselves as secondary. They see themselves as weak. The answer to all of their problems is not going to be found by, by boldly standing behind the name of their God. The solution to their problems will be found by trying to keep the peace and appease the bad guys. They have completely forgotten about all of the commands that have come from God for as long as they have been a people. God has been telling them to, to drive out the even, evil pagan people from around them. It's not what they do. What they do is they gather an army of 3,000 men and they go after Samson. They go after one of their own. And the plan is that they are going to turn him over to the Philistines. These Philistines, that when they come before the men of Judah and say, jump, the men of Judah say, yes, sir, please just don't hurt us, sir. And there's no mention of them seeking God's will in this decision. But even though they don't ask for it, God's will is still going to be done because it's his strange story that is going to continue to advance. All along, it's been God's intention that he wants to see Samson's personal feud with the Philistines turn into an international crisis, and now he's getting exactly what he wants. The people of Judah would rather hand over one of their own to the enemy and live in submission than to fulfill God's will on their life, because they are complacent, because they are cowards, because they were lost because they forgot whose they were, they had forgotten that they were a people called out from the world for a great purpose. Their purpose was that hope might be brought, that one day a blessing would come that would be for all people. And when these 3,000 men, when they do catch up with Samson, again, they do not wisely ask him to lead them into battle, In verse 11, we see what they say. They they, they say to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? You see, these people, they, they saw the enemy right in front of them. And because of it, they forgot the promises of God that lay just over the horizon. If it was conflict that God wanted, it was conflict that he was going to get. Samson was bound and he was brought before this enemy army. Verses 14 and 15 say this, it says, When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that had caught fire. And his bonds melted off his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. And with it he struck one thousand men. The men of Judah, they were perfectly prepared to sacrifice their divinely appointed leader just so that they could preserve the status quo. But God intervened. Right, did you notice it does not say that Samson broke the ropes that bound him by his own strength. It says that the ropes, they melted off of his hands because God's will, again, had to be done. And of all the unusual weapons that we have seen used so far in the book of Judges, we've seen the ox goad, we've seen the tent peg, this chapter we've seen flaming foxes. This is probably the strangest of them all. This is the only weapon that the great warrior had at his disposal was the fresh jawbone of a donkey. Meaning again, in the midst of conquering the enemy, Samson is still breaking his vow. He is still defiling himself and touching a corpse. And remember... I think originally when I heard this story, I'm thinking of like a dried up old jawbone. No, this is fresh. This means there is still flesh hanging from this mangled piece of carcass. But Samson takes this piece of animal carcass and he kills 1,000 Philistines. And as this, this strange chapter comes to a close, verse 20, the very last verse of the chapter, it says he, Samson, judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years period. There's something missing here. It's not the first time that we have gotten to the end of a chapter in Judges and heard about how long someone served as a judge over Israel. Uh, Even go back to, again, Gideon, broken old Gideon, right? It says, Gideon judged Israel for 40 years and the land had rest, meaning the enemies of the people, they were subdued for that period of time, but, but it does not say that here in chapter 15. Chapter 15 ends, and all it says is, Samson was there for 20 years. Again, period. Samson was present, but the people did not get redemption or rest. The people were never freed from their oppressors. There was not victory. What there was was two wasted decades. Now, I don't know how much of our story you will be comfortable with seeing in the life of this spoiled, prideful man. Or how much you're going to be willing to look into the mirror and see the content, cowardly men of Judah possibly staring back at us today. But either way, I'm going to go ahead and say what I think needs to be said. You see, Christians, we justifiably abhor violence. I I would hope we all can agree with that. And I hope we all realize that the amount of violence that we have been exposed to living in a a 24-hour-a-day, 7-day-a-week news cycle is is incomprehensible, incomprehensible, I should say. I hope that you see this and that you find it disgusting and appalling. But I started to think of the violence in our world, I started to remember how it's been almost two years ago that just one of our local schools here experienced a school shooting right up the road in Oxford. I started thinking of all these incidents in recent years, the stories of war and genocides. We, We see how these things have taken their toll on the helpless. I was remembering stories of men driving trucks through Christmas parades, bombs made of pressure cookers, planes that have been hijacked, people that have been kidnapped, how human trafficking is a booming industry, how we've seen our inner cities decimated by gang warfare, fueled by drugs, how we've seen uh, an increase in race-based hate crimes from all sides upon all people. We have seen violence and death and destruction all over our nation and world, and sadly what happens is we become numb. Or we become content or complacent. And too often what happens is we begin to just simply try to keep as much peace as we possibly can have without ever addressing what God may have for us in this season. Just like the men of Judah that we just read about, instead of praying, God, what do we have to do in order to see this this cloak of oppression lifted from our land? We start saying silly things. Like Who can we vote for to fix this problem? Who's the man or woman that we can put in charge of us who's going to cure evil? Right. We spend all of our time just simply looking to reform policies and say, well, let's just put better road barriers up at parades. Let's all just start putting GPS trackers on our kids. Let's make sure every school has a metal detector. Friends can no longer drop us off at the airport gate anymore and wave goodbye. Right. We need to make sure you can't buy this type of gun or this type of magazine, but all of these great laid-out plans we make What we're doing is we're still putting our hope in someone or in something else. And no matter what great plans we make, we will always be left coming up short because what we're doing is we're searching for contentment and we're not pushing and pursuing victory. I'm not discrediting common-sense approaches to dissuade violence. I'm not saying that we shouldn't bother to vote for candidates that we think will help keep us safe. What I'm saying is that if you think that any of those type things are going to rid the world of evil, you are as foolish as the Israelites were in our story today. As foolish as the Israelites who tied up their own countrymen. The only one who was actually anointed by God who could have led them to victory, and then they hand him over to the enemy. You see, we have to remember that on our side, we have the author and the creator of life. On our side is the only one who knows the when of, this, when of this story and how it's going to end. But we still so often want to continually lean on our own understanding. Why? And where has that gotten us so far? What I could not get too far away from this week as I wrote was thinking of God's heart... Thinking of God's heart as he sowed division among the Philistines and the Israelites. Why did he do this? Did he not know that as that division was sowed that there was going to be violence and pain and suffering? That if there was division that those things were going to happen, why not just let the people coexist together so that they could just get along the best that they could? Why would God allow Samson to stir this type of violence in and around his chosen people? Was it because God hated His chosen? He hated the Jews? No. Was it because the Jews maybe needed to be punished? Maybe there's a bit of that there. But at the end of the day, all of this noise and all of this wickedness and all of this violence being stirred up around the Jews, it was all happening because God loved them. Because He knows the pains of this world... No matter how tragic they feel in the moment, they are very temporary. And he knows that the plans that he has for his people are enduring. He knows how he wants to prosper them, and he knows how he wants to prosper us. He wants to do that in a way that is eternal, a blessing that cannot be stripped away by anyone or anything. Not a Philistine, not a political ideology. God's blessing is one that the world, no matter how dark it gets, can never be taken away from you. So Daniel, are you saying that God wants to see our schools get shot up? No. Are you saying that God wants to see gang violence so out of control that babies are being randomly shot in drive-by shootings? No. Are you saying that God wants to see men and women and children suffer all over the world due to war? No. But what I am saying is that I can look at God's word and it can help me try to understand his character. I can look to God's word and I can let go of my own logic and I can try to see his ways. And what God's word does show me is that even in the midst of pain, especially in the pain that is the result from others' bad and poor decisions, God is still in control. That he is not afraid to use the bad and the evil around us to call his people to leave contentment behind, to strive for something that is much greater. He uses how broken this world is to keep our eyes focused on the prize, to always remind us of the why behind what it is that we are doing. And I think right now God wants our attention, church. And when I say our, I'm not just talking about those of us who have gathered in this building, but I'm talking about those of us who gather in buildings like this all across the nation. I wonder what does God think of our contentment to just try to to keep the world as comfortable as we possibly can for as long as we possibly can. I I wonder how he views our contentment as we try to fix all of the problems of the world ourselves through our elections and through our policies, but never really addressing why it is that evil even exists in the first place. We aren't even asking God, why are these things getting so dark around us? God, if your word says that you will make all things work together for your good, how is this happening? How how is that true in light of this, that, and the other thing? Is it because the evil in the world, yes, it's only going to get worse because the world has this rule, this principle that it lives by, even if the world doesn't acknowledge that it has it. And it's very similar to one of our rules that we have as a Christian. Uh, In Matthew 7, verse 12, the words of Jesus, it says, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So that's our rule, the the world's rule. It sounds very similar but it is very, very different. The world's rule has been playing out since the time of Judges and it still exists today and that says whatever someone does to you, you should also do to them. It's a very different rule. But it's because of this rule, that's why what we see is that evil begats more evil. And wickedness begats more wickedness, and violence begats more violence, because in too many of these situations, there is no one with a Christian worldview who is willing to step up and say, regardless of what you have done to offend me or against me, the cycle stops here. There's no one with a Christian worldview who is willing to say, I'm going to turn the other cheek. There's no one to say that I'm going to allow myself to be made less, or I'm willing to even put myself at risk so that the cycle of violence will stop here. Too often there is not a Christian to be found that is more interested in sharing the gospel than they are at the potential for taking a victory lap. You see, contentment and complacency is the enemy of the Great Commission. You know, as often, it's only when the violence gets so overwhelming that we actually stop and even begin to consider or hypothesize as to what heavenly forces may be at work. Recently, what's been on everyone's mind is the war in, in Israel. I think almost all of us have, have stopped at least for a moment and thought, oh, this could be the one. This could be the beginning of something. You know, Jesus' return is getting closer. See, but even that only keeps our attention for a short bit. And then we drift back, again, to, content, to contentment and complacency. As soon as the rockets stop firing... As soon as the violence stops showing up on our TV screens, as soon as the breaking news stops interrupting our normally scheduled lives, right? The breaking news is this. This is the breaking news for you today is, yes, Jesus is going to be returning, like a master who returns unannounced from a trip. And when he does, we're going to have to give an account as a servant for what we have done with what he has entrusted to us. And I've said it before and I'll say it again, He's not going to ask you who you voted for to stop the violence. He's not going to ask you where you stood on gun control. He isn't going to ask you if you won that argument on Facebook. He's going to want you to give an account for the souls that he has entrusted to you, for the circle of influence of people who he has placed in your life. He's going to want to know when the world got scary, did you slam the door shut and keep everyone out and keep everyone at bay to make sure that your boat would not get rocked? Or when things got scary, did you realize that the last thing that God needs right now is for you to be content? I promise you the last thing that you will hear on the day he, the last thing you will want to hear, I should say, on the day that he returns is that someone you love is not coming with you because you were too content and too complacent to do anything about it. Sometimes we do have to let the evil of the world and we have to let the violence of this world rock our boats just a little bit. Not rock us so much that we fall overboard but we have to let it rock us enough that at least it stirs us from our slumber. Pray with me.